Welcome to the first ever episode of Inside Left Pod, a new podcast covering the two best things in the world, football and social democracy. So joining us here in the Match Day Pod squad today, we've got Joe. Um, Hi. We've got Liam. Hi. And David. Hi. Okay, so just to start things, I thought we'd go around and find out how the people in the pod today think their team will do this season. So uh, let's go to Joe first. Uh, I think, I genuinely think Leicester City, so that's my team, are the most difficult team to uh, to predict, uh, given what happened two seasons ago. Um, I'd like to think we should be looking at a top-half finish this season, really. Last season was a bit of a... It's a bit... It was after the Lord Mesh... Lord Mayor's show, we had uh, the Champions League, um, the pre-season before had been messed up by uh, the amount of uh, media we had to do, we had to, we flew over for this International Champions Cup, and uh, we just didn't look ready when we got around to the season. Um, this season we seem to be, seem to be a bit more, a bit quieter for sure, a bit more sensible. Signs were made seem solid. Um, Ian Atcho is supposedly coming in. I think he could be one of the signs of the season. So I'd like to see top half, but it's in, I, I feel like it's impossible to predict Leicester City. Um, let's say eight. I think I'll just go with eight. Eight, kind of uh, best yeah. best of the rest, I guess. Which I think that'd be an excellent achievement. Do you not worry? There's a bit of a, a risk that there could be a bit of a Mike Phelan effect with Craig Shakespeare. So you sort of got, a, got an initial kind of bounce from the players and then after that it all kind of tails off? That's always the risk, isn't it, with an assistant uh, manager uh, taking over as uh, head coach. But um, no, I, I have a lot of faith in Shakespeare. I've been, I was saying when uh, Pearson went to initially um, back a couple of summers ago that uh, he should have got the job. He's uh, highly rated. He was called up for... Uh, be a coach for England in Sam Allardyce's short-lived uh, tenure there. Um, no, I I think that's always a risk, but I think I've I have quite a lot of faith in Shakespeare, and he's been making the right noises so far in the transfer window. And no, I think I'll be all right. I think I'll be all right. Okay, so we've got an uh, optimistic Leicester fan here. Let's go to <laughs> let's go to Liam and hear about Arsenal's season. the sixth best team in the league um, I don't I, all the other top teams have like significantly strengthened well I mean maybe not Chelsea but they obviously they're starting from a really strong position anyway um, but I, I just you know I'm not convinced so far that we have enough to get back into the top four when United have signed Lukaku and they'll probably spend another 100 million before the transfer window is over or whatever Um and I, you know, I'm, uh, obviously I'm not trying to say that it's all about signings, but I think we do have, like, big deficiencies in our squad right now, um, particularly in central midfield. And obviously, if Sanchez does go, which I'm still, even though Wenger seems very adamant that he is not going to go, uh, I think it's definitely possible that he will, because 
you know, these are situations where it's happened before. We like with Nasri um, uh, and Van Persie and stuff like that. Wenger was always, you know, very adamant these players aren't going to go, and eventually he caved. So I, if so, say like PSG came in with like fifty million, I I think you, I think we'd seriously think about selling him. And to be honest, if that happened, I would also think let's sell him uh, just because I think he is getting on a bit. He's 28, well, 28, you know, he's not, but it's, you know, this is going to be his last, like, big, big contract if for any team. So I think it could be wise to sell him if it's an offer that's about that size. But, yeah, apart... So I'd say, to give a position, sixth or fifth, and possibly another FA Cup uh, in the bag, basically. But, yeah. Okay, and would you consider that a successful season? Where do you stand on the whole Wenger in, Wenger out battle? Um, I'm, I'm on the kind of he should go, but not in the kind of frothing at the mouth sense that you see on like kind of Arsenal fan TV, uh, <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff. I, 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 you know, like personally, I, I have a lot of admiration for him. I'd, I'd say I love him to be honest in many ways, um, uh, and. You know, but I just think he's not updated himself as a manager. Um, when you look at play, uh, other managers like Conte, Pochettino, uh, Jurgen Klopp, you know they're all just so much more tactically kind of flexible than he is. Um, and even though he's changed to this three at the back formation, I just don't think he really like truly believes in it. Like he just, I think he just did it because it was the last throw of the dice, and it kind of worked. But I think he, if you know, if it runs into like if we have a three game spell where we don't win, I think he could easily change it quite quickly back to a the four two three one or four three three or something like that. So I, you know, I think he kind of he's just very conservative, which is kind of natural for someone his age. But um, yeah, I think it, it would have been perfect if he left last uh, after the FA Cup. I, that would I, it was my big big hope that he would actually you know resign and say you know yeah i'll end on a high but and that, that's my big fear with him it's just that it will end all miserably and i don't want that to happen because i just i have so much admiration for him basically yeah the three at the back thing you sort of mentioned is interesting actually it kind of um that and the fa cup final um kind of made me think of this there was a, an away game at manchester city a few years ago where arsenal went there and won two nil uh, and yeah, bossed the game and sort of I'm had a... Coughlin playing in that sort of um in that role and everybody just said, oh, this is a new thing for Wenger. You know, he's kind of worked out how to play in these games and things are going to change and they just kind of didn't. And I'm sort of worried that the I, FA Cup final might be a false dawn in the same way. But Yeah, I, I can see what you mean. And I think I think we were... Yeah, I think Wenger kind of... He can do those, those one-off games where he does plan like a tactical like plan for it and stuff like that. So I remember another... I think it was the same season as that Man City game. He did a, and there was a, a match where we played against Liverpool at home, and we won like 4-1, I think, like, or 4-0 or something like that, and he, we did this, like, stunning, like, high press, like, ridiculously high press, and it was so good, and I was just like, what, what, why are we doing this every week, you know, like, it's just like, and it, I, it just confuses me sometimes, because we can do it, but just not on a consistent basis, like, not even just players performing badly on a, um, on a consistent basis, but, um, the tactical kind of like plans just don't seem to be there a lot of the time and it, it's 
quite frustrating. But I think if we got CIS and an FA Cup, I would be fine with it. I wouldn't call it a success, but I would be fine with it, basically. Okay, so we've got 8th place for Leicester, 5th for Arsenal. Uh, and let's find out about Chelsea. David? Yes, yeah, I admit to being a Chelsea fan here and now. Go for it. Um, Chelsea going to finish third. I feel quite. I, I'm going to say up front. Um, I think the signings have been. They've been perfectly reasonable. I think they've actually been pretty good. So I think we're starting on a pretty similar position to how we were starting the beginning of last season. But I do also think that we won the title based on well, firstly the points from that ridiculous winning run, but then also the momentum from the winning run just carried us through to the end. And I think the kind of the morale boost it gave. And I just don't see that happening again this season. So I think we've still got a good enough team to be pretty comfortable in the top four, I think. But not really competing. Well, probably competing for the title, but I think we'll be falling away towards the end, just as partially as a result of Conte's intensity, to be fair. So um, presumably you think what the two Manchester clubs are going to finish ahead of Chelsea this season? I, like Liverpool. I think Liverpool might do it. I think Spurs, maybe Spurs. Spurs. Yeah, I think Spurs. Apart if they weren't playing at Wembley, I yeah. would say Spurs are a favourite <laughs> for the title. <laughs> well, you, sort of, well, you look at—they're the only side that haven't strengthened their squad at all. Spurs, I guess. That'd yeah, be. That, there was a really good ESPN article about uh, this, saying that Spurs have actually secretly had the best um, transfer window of the lot because they've not lost their big players. They've they've kept that squad together. They've kept Kane. They've kept Ali. They've kept. Um, Dyer, they've kept they've, they've kept that solid squad together, other than Kyle Walker, obviously. So they haven't had a a big window in terms of signings, but I think they have had a nice, a solid window. I think if they could like shift um, Sissoko to someone, <laughs> yeah. well, at least I don't know, like fifteen million or something like that, that or twenty million or something, that would be all right. And I think you know. The only where, place where they really, like, I think, need to strengthen is maybe a backup centre-forward for Kane. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Even then they've got uh, Son, and I quite like him up front, but I don't, that's my personal preference. But Yeah, Yeah. I mean, they've got a lot of goals in midfield, but you do think an injury to Kane would really affect their chances. Um, so what about Chelsea in the Champions League then, David? Well, Conte's always been famously bad at cups. So... It's a bit of a weird one, but I actually think that tactically, I think the kind of 3-4-3 has the potential to be quite different in European football. They against teams like Real Madrid, Barcelona and so on. So I think I think quarterfinals, possibly semi-finals on a good day. But I think finals or winning it, I think are unlikely with Conte. And I wouldn't trade a brilliant cup manager for a brilliant league manager, because I think the league is, is quite important. Mm. I think, to be fair to Conte, like, um, I used to watch kind of a lot of Serie A when he was manager of Juventus and stuff like that. And I think the issue that he had with kind of the Champions League back when he was at Juventus was that simply the intensity at which he plays is the problem. So, like, mm. you, you, and he doesn't rotate either. That's the thing. So, like, he, he, you, well, you, he, you, he would basically use the same eleven that he would use at the, at the weekend, and you know the players would be basically like on you know shattered really. And it, it, I think he's got to learn to rotate. And that, that is one worry that I do have for Chelsea is that 
you don't seem to have signed enough players, like yeah. just in pure numbers terms, like to actually, unless he's thinking about bringing in like some of the kids, which I don't think is likely, then um, yeah, it, it, I just think your squad is like low on numbers, basically. Yeah, we do genuinely have a really small squad, especially in the crucial areas for playing a three-four-three. I think like get an injury to Conte or to Mac or to not to Matic, to Fabregas or to Bayer if I think is already injured, then you begin to look at, you know, dipping down into the academy for some very, very untested players, which I would love to see some gro- some players brought through. And, you know, why sell Nathaniel Chalabar and Nathan Arke if that's going to be your problem? But they have done that, so I think there is a notable weakness in terms of just sheer depth. With the season fast approaching, uh, we can also look at the other end of the table. So, which teams do you think are going to struggle in the Premier League this season? Uh, let's go to Liam. Oh, uh, put me on the spot. Um, I think Burnley could really struggle. Uh, I, I mean, I haven't really looked. Let me just like look at their squad right now. Uh, but the only signing that I know they've made is um, Jonathan Walters, which is like. Um, which I think I said in our like chat was like the most Burnley uh, signing ever. Yeah, they've also signed Jack Cork, is it? Oh uh, yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, for a team that sort of works as hard as Burnley do and things like this, you always feel their squads are a little bit shallow. Um, and you know their form last season was so dependent on them doing well at home. If they lose that this season, they're going to be in trouble. Yeah, I th- yeah, that's just that's my. Like worry, I think their squad, you know, it's basically like a, a very good chap, like an extremely good championship uh, championship squad, and I don't think they they're gonna perform anywhere near as good as they did last season at home. I think a lot of their kind of I I you know I like follow a lot of the kind of like expected kind of goals guys, and a lot of their like home wins were kind of you know weren't through creating good chances at home. Um, but they were actually through kind of, you know, luck and kind of, you know, long shots taking deflections. Get, you know, they. I think they're, they're strong defensively, but I just think unless they add someone like that from abroad that or from the Premier or from a team in the Premier League that's a bit higher than them, that's kind of can bring their play to a new kind of level, I don't really see them get I could see them easily being relegated basically just because I don't think they've got enough goals in them really and you look at that their uh, transfers in this uh, window it doesn't fill you it wouldn't fill me with confidence if I was a Burnley fan Charlie Taylor from Leeds United Jonathan Walters from Stoke City Jack Cork from Swansea City and Phil Bardsley from Stoke City it's not it's not inspiring does like uh, Sean Dyche know that he can find players from like other countries or like <laughs> the, the, that aren't from the British Isles because like I'm looking at the squad they've got one guy from Belgium Iceland one guy from Norway and then a guy from Canada and they're, and Aust- and one guy who's technically from Austria Ashley Barnes is technically Austrian well uh, didn't know that didn't know that but yeah he's <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, an underrated one of those he's an underrated like proper football man isn't he he's like uh he wants to do it in a certain way. Um, I remember when we were getting promoted from the championship, he had a go at us for uh, spending lots of money. And then you looked at our actual spending in that transfer window. 
That was the exact same. It was the exact same. But because we'd signed some like people with foreign names, we must have spent lots of money. In <laughs> okay, I'm going to throw in another team that might struggle this season. Uh, West Ham. I think. Uh, <sighs> yeah. I think they're they're assembling there a really good uh, team for the sort of 2010 season. Um, you've got kind of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you got Joe Hart, Zabaleta in, have they? Um, so I don't know. I think I have a theory about West Ham in that whenever um, you know football managers come in, they say they want to stamp, you know, time to stamp their own authority on the team. Um, and I think it's taken Slavin Bilic a couple of seasons to do that. But the only thing is, it's not been an improvement on what was there before. So you know, his first season, he inherited quite a solid defence from Sam Allardyce, um, which just over the course of a season seems to have collapsed if you look at their defensive stats year on year on year they just get worse and worse and i do worry for them this season yeah i think i like uh the hernandez i think that's a good signing um but yeah i agree that i, I well i don't really rate village that much as a manager no. um and i think the fact that well since they've moved from um Upton Park or whatever it's supposed to be called, but the bowling, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I just think that the London Stadium is um just I think that atmosphere at Upton Park gave them quite a bit of an edge at home, and I think you know they clearly like lost that last season. I mean it um it's an atrocious place to play really. Um, I I mean I think they could definitely like uh have trouble at some points. Um, but yeah. I think uh, keeping Lanzini, uh, if they can keep him, they could. That could be like a difference maker, possibly. Okay. David, who's going to struggle this season? I mean, Brighton and Huddersfield have to be the two obvious names. They're, you know, incredibly good Championship squads, but I just don't know if they have what it takes to survive in the Premier League. I think. Which Huddersfield have been sticking with their promoted squad quite heavily, I think. And Brighton have been making a lot of big signings. And if I remember right, that might be the completely other way around. And it's just, it's not an approach which has been, neither approach has been especially successful for promoted teams in the past. And I really like promoted teams to stay up. And I really like both Brighton and Huddersfield. I think Chris Hewton and uh, David Vargas have done tremendous jobs at both of them. But pessimistically, I think they're going to have to struggle this season. Yeah, I, I was under the impression that Brighton hadn't really added too many names to their squad, actually. Um, and, you know, Bournemouth kind of did it by keeping the sort of the core of the squad together as they came through the divisions and just adding when necessary. But, you know, teams who come up are always going to be you know, amongst those near the bottom, generally, you'd expect. Yeah. Uh, Joe? Uh, the only other one I'd throw in is probably Watford. I think that uh, Marcus Silva's a quality manager, but... They, the end of last season, they looked atrocious at times. It was it was a disgrace, frankly. Um, and then you look at what they've brought in. I'm not. I don't think any of them is that inspiring. I think, I think they could be coming to their at the end of their run in the Premier League now. Um, yeah, but I, I'd agree with uh, Huddersfield. I think Brighton have slightly more about them than Huddersfield, and I think they'll be okay. Um, just because uh, people like Knocker, I think, is really going to have a good run at the Premier League this time. Um, 
Uh, so I think they've started off with a, a stronger squad. So, so yeah, I think Brighton will be okay. Uh, but I, so if I had to pick three, I'd go Huddersfield, Watford, and and another to go down. I've not decided on that third one. Let's go Huddersfield and Watford and another. I see. I, I think I think Watford are going to have a good season. I, I rate Marco Silva as a manager. I think what he did at Hull was it's amazing to get them anywhere near safety last season. And I could see them oh, being. No, I absolutely rate Marco Silva. I just, I, I just can't see it with that squad. I, I, I wonder about what. So they've been chopping, changing managers for a long time, and and it's been, it's been going all right. But I don't know this season. And um, I think it might. The other name I throw in, uh, but nothing against Marco Silva, who I rate quality uh, as a quality manager. But the other name I throw in is um given there's been a lot of teams who've gone from like upper mid-table and then really collapsed the next season. People like, I mean, Swansea's a good example, I think, or West Ham, if these predictions come to pass. Um, it's a bit of a left-field one, but I think there is a chance at Stoke City. I don't think they'll be relegated, but I think they've got a chance of being in, with a, of being in the relegation battle, certainly early on in the season. I think Mark Hughes is really coming to the end of his ability to really do anything with that squad. They really didn't impress last season, and you know they've lost. They've lost Jonathan Walter. What do you do once you've lost Jonathan Walter? <laughs> I mean, it is a weird thing about Stoke in that they always seem to start every season very badly as well, don't they? So they kind of yeah. right off the first four or five games of every season anyway. Um, for a second, I thought you were going to put Southampton into the mix there. Actually, as a team that could struggle, there's a lot of unknowns there. New manager, and they don't really seem to have signed that many people yet. I think we think that every season about Southampton. I don't know if this is a season their luck runs out. Well, you know, I mean, they've got they've got most of the same squad as last year. I think Shane Long's gone to West Brom, has he? Um, but yeah, we we'll have to see. One year, you kind of feel that they might get it wrong. I don't know. I feel like I th- I feel like they're such a well-run club that I just don't see them like having any trouble really um and i think that squad is too good as well to be anywhere near kind of like struggling um and i i mean i don't know much about their manager but i have you know like faith in the people who appoint uh southampton who, who who's in charge of appointing the uh coach of southampton that you know they've they've had a pretty decent run and I, I feel like puel was kind of harshly treated last year i felt they did pretty well they got to the carlin cup final and you know they they were kind of Apart from Everton, they were kind of the best of the rest. So I, I you know, that's kind of what Southampton is really. So I don't know, but, but um, yeah, I think I think to be honest, Southampton will be fine. Really. Before we move off football, we're going to let Joe talk a little bit about the Euros that have been going on. So away you go, Joe. Yeah. So uh, it's been a fantastic tournament for the England uh, women's team. Um, so we beat France uh, over the weekend, I think it's Sunday, but I'm not 100% on that. Um, that was the first time we beat France in 43 years, so it was a big result. Um, then we've got the semi-final on Thursday against the Netherlands, so, um, so it's been going really well. We're now favourites in the tournament, um, and we've been playing really well. We started off with a fantastic... Uh, smashing of the Scottish team uh, 6-0 it was it was beautiful um, uh, Jodie Taylor who got a hat 
tournament by a long way. So yeah, the, the side's going really well. So if you want to see an England team actually win some football matches, then I would, uh, in a major tournament, then I'd recommend um, checking out the uh, semi-final England-Netherlands on Thursday the 3rd, so this week, um, at 7.45. So it's been a really good tournament. Uh, I definitely recommend watching it on Thursday. There we go. There's a plug for the England women on Thursday. <laughs> We're going to switch to politics at this point. So I'm going to ask a really difficult question. Uh, who can I send it to? Let's go to Liam first. Uh, what should Labour's policy on Brexit be? It should be that we should be trying to in the customs union and the single market and that we should be trying to push for freedom of like staying within like a Norway style deal basically because I think now is the time to do that I think that the Brexit kind of realities are kind of economic realities are starting to kick in and I think people are starting to feel it and even though the kind of the polling hasn't changed massively um, I listened to um, uh, Polling Matters, the uh, podcast done by Kieran uh, Pedley, um, which is great. If you should, as people should definitely check it out. And, and kind of they've been tracking the second referendum. Uh, who would you want a second referendum? And I think since about um, December last year, it's, it's quite rapidly increased from about kind of like 25%. I'm not, these figures aren't like accurate, just be, but it's around that number to around like 41% of the public now would be, you know, Welcome, uh, would you know welcome a second referendum which I think you know is not kind of like an insignificant change um, in such a kind of like not you know a massive uh, it's a quite a short space of time um, and I just think Brexit is you know I think the, the party hasn't realized yet that Brexit isn't is gonna is just it's bigger than two elections basically it's it's gonna change this country for the next you know 20 to 30 years so I think to kind of not do something which is to 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 pursue a position which supports the government uh, the government which is going to lead us to kind of economic disaster and therefore you know hurt so many people's lives is not really a responsible position for a major political party to take. And I, I and I obviously I think this isn't a realistic. What I'm saying now isn't realistic because of the leadership. And also, kind of, um, I think also that even a lot of people on the right of the party don't think that we should um, go for that uh, Norway-style option because they believe that kind of immigration needs to be lower and that kind of that position. So it's not feasible. But that's just my personal view, basically. Yeah, um, I mean, personally, I think I agree with a lot of that. Um, I think. The other thing I would say is, you know, clearly it's kind of it's difficult to know whether Labour are kind of doing it deliberately in terms of, you know, Corbyn will say, well, we're leaving the single market. And then a few days later, somebody else like John McDonnell will say, actually, well, we'll look at it, whether they're trying to cover all bases or whether they're not really sure or what it is. But it, it kind of feels like for a, the main opposition party that, you know, if we're sort of hoping for opinion to change in our direction we could do a lot more to actually shift that opinion in our direction ourselves and start making those arguments um joe let's come to you what should labor do no, I think, yeah i think i agree with but what both of you said really so 
I understood the fudge that Labour made during the election. It was a defensive election. We had to show that we accepted Brexit and we had to prove that we accepted it. Um, and I didn't really have a problem with fudging it slightly during that election because that was about keeping as many seats as we could. Um, but now that we've probably got a decent uh, stretch of time before the next election, because I don't think the Tories want one anytime soon, um, then I think we should be making the argument for what the majority of Labour members, if not Labour MPs, believe is the correct pathway now, which is the Norway-style option. Um, and I agree with what Liam said about if that's not a feasible uh, direction for the party under Jeremy Corbyn, because that's not what he believes in. Uh, and I agree with him when he says um, as large sections of the right uh, of the party, particularly the sort of brown-eyed, old right types who um, don't who don't believe in that Norway freedom of movement option either. But in an ideal world, the, the Labour Party would be putting forward a vision of a Norway-style option for the UK. And dare I say it, if public opinion, if it was possible that public opinion could change this far, a second referendum on a new deal, I don't expect anything like that to happen. I don't think it's feasible. But that's where I find the Labour Party to be headed. Yeah, it kind of feels like a, a second referendum is a bit of a pipe dream, to be honest. But um... Yeah, it's a complete pipe dream. It's not going to happen. But yeah, that's, that's the direction I wish we were heading in. I, I guess I, I sort of throw in that. I think, you know, the old Labour right, well, I sort of, you know, I get what you mean in terms of immigration. I think there are still strong trade union links there as well. And the trade unions are quite keen for us to stay in the single market for fairly obvious reasons. Um, so it's maybe not as kind of cut and dried on the, the Labour right as we might think, I suppose. Um, I, I think, sorry, can I just... Yeah, go um, I think when I was... Just to change my, like, the feasible thing um, with Corbyn, I think it is there is some room for change in that the unions, if it became clear that it was going to be absolute disaster, you know, the unions, like, started putting pre like major pressure on Jeremy... And the labour me labour membership. If if something like triggered a change there, then I could see Jeremy kind of, he, you know, he's more pragmatic than I think people give him credit for. So I could see him possibly changing his stance if that if the unions and the membership itself actually kind of voiced like massive discontent. But as of yet, I have we haven't really seen that. So, but if that did start to happen, then I think Jeremy's position could possibly change. But that's the only way I can see that changing, basically. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, Jeremy Corbyn would kind of perceive that he would want to keep the members on side more than he might want his particular version of Brexit, I suspect. Uh, David? Well, the British Election Survey came out, came out this morning, and um, in the write-up on the BBC website, which is really good and which everyone should find and read at once, um, the authors pointed out, I think Labour's lead among people who prioritise access to the single market over cutting immigration is 40%. And I think they said they say fairly flatly, Labour is now the party of soft Brexit, which is obviously makes it quite remarkable that Labour is not, in fact, the party of 
soft Brexit in policy terms. And I think Labour dodged a massive bullet in that respect in Vince Cable becoming leader of the Liberal Democrats. Firstly, because Vince Cable is pretty rubbish. And secondly, <laughs> because if because Vince Cable is going to carry on the second referendum policy, which I think is probably not an especially popular or feasible one, whereas my MP, the only good Liberal Democrat, Norman Lamb, has come out in favour of a soft Brexit option. And I think if there was another party definitely offering the Norway-style option as opposed to a quite confused outlook on the second referendum, I think Labour's position as the party of soft Brexit might be under challenge there. But I think for as long as Labour don't actually have to make the policy decisions, I think they can carry on with this fudge. I don't think it's good for the country. I don't think it's an especially responsible position. But I also think that electorally, it can last a few years. The question is, when hard Brexit starts being economically disastrous, do Labour think that it's a good enough benefit in the long run to be able to say, I told you so? And I'm not sure it is, really. So I think electorally, they might have hit upon a pretty solid position, pretty much by accident, I think. Yeah, I mean, you kind of understand why you'd you know, want to sort of sit on the fence for as long as you can and then jump off in the direction that seems best. Um, but then there's quite a lot of collateral damage in that um, stance as well. So while it might be electorally appealing, I don't think it's a particularly um, responsible thing to do, as you say. I think the problem is, if you believe in a soft Brexit and there is nobody making a strong argument for a soft Brexit, I don't see how opinion necessarily going to change in time you're going to you're going to be hit with the impacts of hard brexit and then what then do we wait for everyone to change their mind it's probably too late by that point isn't it so yeah we need someone making the argument so yeah i agree that the fudge was the electorally correct thing to do but at a certain point someone needs to be making that argument and it can't be left to like tony blair <laughs> it needs to be someone <laughs> popular someone who could be electorally popular um, and that needs to be the Labour Party in my opinion but we'll see <laughs> I think Labour also just has to be like wary of like because there's a genuine chance that Labour could be in government after the next election and I you know I think there's a danger of us like ruining any chance that we have of actually making a difference by kind of tacitly like supporting the government here because if we come into government and the country has no money, we can't actually do anything progressive. Um, so, or we're very limited in what we can do. We can basically kind of try and make sure that the, you know, the poorest in the country are shielded from the, the, the you know, the economic hardships of what hard Brexit brings. But we can't actually improve significantly improve those people's lives. We can kind of just keep them, you know, kind of at, you know, uh, at the same level. And that's not really what Labour wants to do. So I, and yeah, so that's just my big worry here that we're kind of just slowly edging into a situation where we kind of, we've been waiting to get into government for so long. And then when we are actually in government, we can't do anything. Yeah. So um, there's an article in The Guardian today by Matt Zab Cousin, um, everybody's favourite person on Twitter, who. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who uh, basically sort of argues that actually 
many sort of young Corbyn supporters don't really care about Brexit as much as they care about, you know, free tuition and, you know, you know, getting rid of poverty and making sure hospitals are funded properly. And it all feels a bit kind of horse before the cart, that argument, really. You know, if you sort of consider the potential implications of Brexit, all of those other things do depend on that as well. I yeah, I think... agree with him, though, that he's right, that I don't think they care about that compared to those other things. I just think, uh, as you say, the implications of Brexit that they're going to have on those things they do care about are huge, and Labour needs to be making that argument now and not be fudging for electoral reasons for an election that's not, not on the horizon yet. We need to be setting out our argument now. We need to be convincing people. I think that while I haven't actually read the article, but I think while Zab Cousin is possibly right about kind of young, very politically engaged Corbyn supporters on Twitter, I think that, you know, go back and look at the British Electoral Survey again. It's like, I can't remember the exact figures, but I think it's something like 35% of all voters have Brexit as their number one concern and less than 10% have any other thing as their number one concern, including the NHS, the economy. So I think that the kind of argument, oh yeah, no one really cares about Brexit, I think that's kind of been debunked this morning. So I think there's an extent to which he's trying to persuade himself, I think, in a way, that this position the Labour Party's going for, oh yeah, it's fine, which I don't think really is true. Yeah, or, or at least sort of convince kind of... Uh you know, ideological fellow travellers that this is the position to take at this point, perhaps. Thank you very much to everybody for listening. Uh, You've been listening to me, Joe, Liam and David on the first ever Inside Left pod.